morning. Today's passage comes to, the, to us from the book of Genesis, chapter 3, verses 8 through 15. And they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord among the trees of the garden. Then the Lord God called to the man and said to him, Where are you? He said, I heard the sound of you in the garden, and I was afraid because I was naked, so I hid myself. And he said, Who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten from the tree of which I commanded you not to eat? The man said, The woman whom you gave to be with me, she gave me from the tree, and I ate. Then the Lord God said to the woman, What is this you have done? And the woman said, The serpent deceived me, and I ate. The Lord God said to the serpent, Because you have done this, cursed are you more than all cattle and more than every beast of the field. On your belly you will go, and dust you will eat all the days of your life. I will put em- 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 bad feelings between you and the woman. <laughs> enmity. Enmity is the word between you and the woman, and between your seed and her seed. He shall bruise you on the head, and you shall bruise him on the heel. I did that on purpose. (laughs) There has to be one hard word in every passage, you know, just to to trip up the reader, if nothing else. Well, good morning, everybody. Uh, Merry Christmas. Uh, May the the peace of Christ be with you in this coming new year. Um, It is uh, always a pleasure to get together together here and uh, worship the Lord together and study his word for a bit together. And uh, so that's what we're going to do today. The passage that Larry just read for us, the portion of Genesis 3 that he just read, almost comes off like a a bit of something like, say, the Jersey Shore or the Real Housewives of whatever city you want to name or whatever uh, of those uh, wonderful pieces of entertainment that uh, fill our airwaves today. But it's it's the real truth of God's word. You know, New Year's is a time when many of us consider the resolutions that we want to make uh, the, uh, and the commitments on our parts that, that those resolutions will, will entail. It's also a point in the year when most people think in terms of parties and festivities and celebration. Now, there's little in Genesis 3 that speaks to a party-like atmosphere. Uh, Yet there's a great deal here that shows us God's commitment uh, to his creation. I believe that we have here a telling of the story of grace and hope, redemption and glory, all wrapped into one early on in, in God's word to us. Let's pray together. Father God, we just want to lift up our time today to you, to come before you as your people, as your body as uh, a gathering of folk who uh, seek to know you, to rest in the comfort of your presence, and to be ones who, who desire to follow you in, in ways that are real and relevant, and uh, that your truth would abound in this world where we live today. Lord, we, we thank you for this chance to be here together. We thank you for this opportunity to share in worship together, to be your family together. So, Lord, uh, please bless our time together. Let us know your your will and your, your revealed truth 
through your word. In the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen. Um, This has been a hard season for us in this country and in our world. We have been faced with news of brutality and violence and the appearance of evil in places near and far away. We hear of and see images of real-life tragedies. They come to us from places far away like India. They come to us from nearby in Sandy Hook, Denver, other places. I'm not sure that 2012 is a year that many of us would want to actually repeat. It's not been the brightest of years in our history. And yet it's not singular in its lack of its lack of love and its, uh, and its evil and the depravity that has been present in our world. Uh, the history of our planet is littered with hatred and oppression and various forms of genocide. Places such as Darfur, Rwanda, the former Yugoslavian states, and Cambodia raise images of senseless slaughter. The 20th century was by far the bloodiest in the history of humanity. At this time, there are still survivors of the Holocaust who live with us and who can tell the tales of of some of that brutality. World War II itself is perhaps the greatest catastrophe in human history from the perspective of lives lost. Uh, Christian ethicist David Gushy estimates that between 1939 and 1945, approximately 55 million people died. 20 million Soviets, 14 million Chinese, 7 million Germans, two and a half million non-Jewish Poles, between 220,000 and 500,000 Sinti and Roma, people we know as gypsies, and six million European Jews. The death toll of that one brief period in our history is frighteningly huge, and yet it is not singular in the 20th century. By looking ahead in our text in the next chapter of Genesis, we encounter the telling of the murder of 25% of humanity in a singular event. Contemplate that. When Cain slew Abel. Let me step aside from the text for a moment and just share my view of this and other Old Testament passages. I believe that we need to look at the full counsel of Scripture at all times. We certainly can look to singular verses and to singular passages and to singular books and gain great perspective in God and his, his desire for us, his will for us, and his working in our lives. But to gain the full and total understanding of, of both who God is and of who he sees us as being, we need to look at the totality of Scripture. Therefore, I believe that these passages these ones that are buried deep in the Old Testament, ones that often, uh, by some, some folks, often count as being more story or more fable than real-life true recitation of historical event, are in fact vital and valuable for us as we, as we seek to know God better. These passages out of the Old Testament tell us about the God who is the God prevalent in the New Testament under the New Covenant, At the same time, the New Testament, that new covenant of God, the time when Christ is is among us in this world, either through his bodily presence or in his spirit, are highly revelatory for us in reading the Old Testament. I do not believe that we can read the Old Testament without looking at Christ's presence, without looking at the God of the totality of human existence, the God of all creation, the God of all time, the God of the universe, and see him present in 
every single piece of the Old Testament. I don't believe that there is any place that we do not find him. There is nothing there that is, is not uh, valuable for finding and knowing and, and learning to worship and learning to live in the grace and under the, the headship of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Therefore, that's the approach we're gonna, I, I'm going to take to this passage. I don't intend to take a lot of time to work through the entirety of Genesis 3. We've done that before here. Uh, if you want to go back and, and listen to teaching on this chapter, go back to Jackson's teaching from October of 2008. It's available to you online. Uh, you can listen to it. But we're going to just spend some time looking at some of the high points of this, this passage this morning. So as we jump back into the text, one of the first things we see in verse 1, Now the serpent was more crafty than any beast of the field which the Lord God had made. We, we have entering into the story a new actor, this serpent. Now the serpent is a character that uh, scholars, theologians, commentarians have various opinions about. They believe various things about him, uh, about this character in the story. I believe that regardless of whether this was in fact uh, a beast of the field, which is, it seems to be that this was a creature of God's creation, because the text tells us that, that Satan is present in this moment. And that the voice that we hear speaking is that of the, of the devil. And that he is the one who is attempting to lead the, the first people, Eve first and then Adam, away from God and to lead them into rebellion against God. Uh, and, and I think that the, this is particularly informed by John's description of this same creature, I believe, in Revelation 12:9, when he says, And the great dragon was thrown down, the serpent of old, who was called the devil and Satan, who deceives the whole world. He then repeats almost exactly the same phrase again in, in Revelation 20, verse 2. God had granted to the first people all that was good, needful and beneficial for living life well and living life fully in his creation. He had given them anything and everything they could have wanted or needed, and he had granted them the abundance of his presence at all times, a full and complete, unfettered, un, unbroken relationship with, with their creator, with God himself. But doubt enters the picture. The serpent comes and whispers words that bring about this doubt. The serpent's question, did God really say? Brings about a, a sense of, of questioning in, in the woman. And she begins to question whether God may have really said what he intended, that maybe he meant something different. Maybe they were not to follow the exact letter of the, the law that he had laid out for them. And so they, they question and they bring about, and this question is one that actually is one I think we deal with in, in the reality of living life. This question, did God really say? Did God really mean me to do it that way? Is God's word really clear and absolute on this topic? Is this the way we are supposed to live? I think this is a question that we continue to wrestle with in our own lives to this very day. This very question of, did God really mean it the way that his word seems to say he did? And this question brings about doubt and brings about 
a desire on our parts to move away from the center of what God has intended for us and move more into the center of what we desire. He moves us away from, this, this question moves us away from following God's word, following his will and living within the center of it to seeking out our own understandings and, to li- and living in the center of our own desires, our own comfort, our own place of greatest sense of fulfillment as opposed to how God would see us being fulfilled in this life. God's way is not always a comfortable way. I think most of us experience that reality. There are times when his way is one that, that leads us into tough places, into hard existence, into dealing with our, our, our desires and our emotions and our, our feelings and our wants and our aspirations in ways that do not seem to be leading us to the place we would like to be. And yet, as we, as we go step by step, day by day, year by year, down this road with God, and as we choose to follow his word and follow his will, he brings truth to us. He reveals greater truth, and he brings us into a place where we begin to understand and to know that his way is the right way. His way is the way of prosperity. His way is the one that Adam and Eve were experiencing when all of their true needs, all of that they truly required to sustain life well, to live in a, in a pleasing and, and, a ha- and, a, and a pleasant environment, were granted to them by God. And yet they doubted. And the doubt led them to rebellion. And like the first people, we put ourselves in the center of this creation. They were being fed from the center, from the source of the tree of life, and they were no longer willing to trust God's goodness and remain true to their creator. They believed that they could know more, that they could be the possessors of all the knowledge and still live. It is easy to blame Satan for it all. After all, he's the serpent that slithers into or walks into or flies into, I don't know, whatever description you want to put of him, uh, into the scene. But like Adam and Eve, I think we get to own our own rebellion. Dietrich Bonhoeffer, the German theologian and pastor, in his book, uh, Creation and Fall, had this to say about it. Because the fall of humankind is both inconceivable and finally inexcusable in God's creation, the word disobedience fails to describe the situation adequately. It is rebellion. The creature is stepping outside of the creature's only possible attitude. The creature is becoming creator. The destruction of creatureliness, a defection, a falling away from the safety held as a creature. As such a defection, it is a continual fall, a dropping into a bottomless abyss, a state of being let go, a process of moving further and further away, falling deeper and deeper. And in all this, it is not merely a moral lapse, but the destruction of creation by the creature. The extent of the fall is such that it affects the whole created world. From now on, that world has been robbed of its creatureliness and drops blindly into infinite space like a meteor that has torn itself away from the core to which it once belonged. So, unlike Goethe's Faust, who was admonished, alas, alas, you have destroyed it, destroyed the beautiful world with a mighty fist. It falls down, it collapses in ruin. O mighty one among the sons of earth, build it again in your heart. Adam and Eve and us 
we must live in the destroyed world that our hands have made. We are rebellious. Our grandparents, to the whatever degree you want to make them, were rebellious. As the passage says in verse 17, cursed is the ground, look at this word, because of you. Before we knew only pleasure, humanity lived in the pleasure of God's provision and care. There was no distance, no separation between our God and ourselves. But now, pleasure and pain are inextricably joined together. They both reside in in all aspects of our lives. They reside in our human relationships. How often do you engage in, in your human relationships and run into both the pleasure of the relationship and the pain of relating? It is a constant in our world. They, they exist in our love relationships, in our most intimate and close relationships, our family, our spouses. And, and they cause great destruction in those relationships. You know, look, at the, look at the prevalence of divorce in our world. Look at the prevalence of broken family, of pain, of destruction in our world. And they exist in our relationship with all of creation. All of creation is damaged by the sin that came into the world through the, the, through the, through the rebellion of the first people and through the rebellion of all of us ever since. And these are the results. These are the things which, which we own because of that sin. Because not, and, and, and it would be easy to say, well, let me blame, you know, as we start the story, let, let me blame Satan for what happened. Let me blame uh, those first people as, as remember what happens in the story. What, is, what happens when God confronts his first people? They start blame shifting. They start saying, you know, that woman you gave me, well, that serpent that, came, that you know, implied, that serpent that you created, that, that, uh, that's the problem here. So the, the natural tendency is to do that, but I think we need to own it. We need to, we need to accept the fact that we are actors in this, in this brokenness of our world. It is our sin that we can own. It is our sinfulness that we can be accountable for. And it is God's grace that speaks to that same sinfulness and, and, and answers our accountability. We live in a state of constant tension between good and evil. At times the good prevails. At other times we attempt to appease evil by joining in its assault upon God's lawful order. Yet evil is an all-consuming beast, and it will never be appeased by any form of sacrifice or service that we might bring to its altar of pain and death. No matter, no matter what we may do, we will never successfully sacrifice enough to, to appease Satan and his, and his evil. It will always, always, always devour and destroy. We will never win him over. He is a lost actor in this play. But as a direct result of rebellion, our lives are now lived until death ends them. We have ingested death in the form of fruit. We are now cut off from the tree of life that was found at the center of the garden. We are now cut off from the eternity that was the substance of that great tree. Now we are to live out, our own, out of our own resources as we go about in our newly found state of being like God. Remember, that's what, that's what the Adam and Eve wanted to be. They wanted to be like God. They got their answer. They got their, they got their desire. However, 
In this state, our resources are limited, finite, and perishable, just as now we are. This is a complete change from the state that God created us in, in which we were created in God's image. Now, as the result of our desires and decisions, we live as mere shadows of what was, as all of humanity is condemned to live without life. This is a state that God will not permit. He won't allow us to continue in this state, the state of, of death in life. So he decrees that Adam and all of his descendants would return to the source of Adam's formation in the dust of the earth. God takes away that eternity, that, that physical eternity that was Adam's and Eve's in the promise of their original creation and says, now you must die. You must return to the dust from which you were made. Yet God does not leave his creation in this place of separation and loss. His grace is beyond comprehension. Again, back to, back to Herr Bonhoeffer. How should Adam, who has fallen from faith, know that the real death of death is never nothingness, but only the living God? Indeed, that there is no such thing as nothingness, that the promise of the death of death never means nothingness, but only life, Christ himself. How should Adam know that in the promise of death, already the end of death, the resurrection of the dead was being spoken of? How could Adam hear announced already in the peace of death and returning to Mother Earth, the peace that God wishes once more to conclude with the earth, the peace that God wishes to establish over a new and blessed earth in the world of the resurrection. So God, God does not leave us in that place where he has driven us away from the garden, where he has taken away our access to eternity. He does not leave us in that place. Let's take a look at verse 15. Right here, to me, this is the centerpiece of this whole passage. And I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your seed and her seed. He shall bruise you on the head and you shall bruise him on the heel. Here is the first mention in God's word of the promise of redemption in the form of the Messiah. Here we have God from the very beginning of the narrative of humanity's existence in, in God's creation with the promise of our, our resurrection, our restoration, our return to God's full grace and favor. Here it is. This, I believe that this, this statement that is made here is, has, has a couple of aspects to it. One is very clearly to me, and, and, and I think most conservative commentarians, that this is in fact the discussion of that promise of the Messiah, that promise of the, the Savior, that promise of redemption. This is also a statement, I believe, that clearly indicates God's intent from the very beginning that he would be sovereign over all of his creation. Remember, we have, a, we have a character here in this form of the serpent who exists on two, I believe, exists in, in, on two planes. He first comes into it in his physical presence as a, as a created being, as part of God's creation. However, we have also Satan appearing in some way, in, in interacting with and using the serpent as his tool and speaking clearly of his, his evil intent. And I think that we have, in the case of the, this, this curse upon the serpent, we have 
a twofold aspect here of God's intent. One is that he would be from that point forward and forevermore still completely sovereign over all of creation. In addition to that, we have the promise of the seed, that one who would come from the line of man who would, in fact, destroy the serpent, bruise him on the head, striking the fatal blow. And so we have, I think we have God's multiple intent for us beginning to play out here. The Lord is not giving away, abdicating or suspending any of his authority over creation despite humanity's rebellious acts, despite the fact that we are the ones who brought sin into into creation and caused this great disruption in God's created order. There is great comfort and true hope in this, for God's promise of victory over evil's best efforts at destruction are intended for us. God intends these promises to be for us, for his, cre- his creature, his creation, us. And remember God's promise to us. Theologian John Gertzner said, Satan was majestically triumphant in this battle. He nailed Jesus to the cross. The prime object of all of his striving through all of the ages was achieved, but he failed. For the prophecy which had said that he would indeed bruise the seed of the woman had also said that his head would be crushed by Christ's heel. Thus, while Satan was celebrating his triumph in the battle over the Son of God, the full weight of the atonement accomplished by the crucifixion, which the devil himself had effected, came down on him, on Satan. And he realized that all this time, so far from successfully battling against the Almighty, he had actually been carrying out the purpose of the all-wise God. Satan thought that bringing about the destruction of God's pinnacle work of creation in humanity would bring down all of the glory that was the Most High God. Well, he got it very wrong. From before any of the work of the creation had begun, God had anticipated and prepared for the very sequence of events that would ensue. For as Paul says in Romans 16.20, the God of peace will soon crush Satan under your feet. And I believe, folks, that that is very much God's intent from the very beginning of this story, the very beginning of this narrative. He intends for his creation, for us, his humanity, to become the ones who act on his behalf, under his will, under his authority, in this world. He wants to be very much a part of this world. God, uh, we've just gone through the, the season of Advent, coming up to Christmas, And that that brings us to Emmanuel, God with us. And God with us is something that happened back then in the sense of Jesus being born as a human and coming into this world and living among us. But it also continues on into into the, the ages beyond to our very time today. Throughout the, the remainder of time, this is something that will continue for God with us is not something that, that came and went. It is something that has always been. From before the creation of this world, God has been with us. He will be with us through all of time and on through all of eternity. 
God with us is the reality that we need to begin to live out of and to claim as our own. This is, this is the reality of, of life that God calls his, his people to embrace. He wants us to be committed to him in the sense that he wants us to seek out his will, to know his word, to live in fellowship of his community, to be ones who are ever seeking to know him better. He desires for us to set aside the fears and the concerns that, that, that separate us from, from following him. He desires for us to be people who, who cannot accept the way things are in a broken world and say, that's just the way it is. He doesn't want us to live like that anymore. He desires for us and has always desired for his people to be ones who make, bring about change in our world by bringing Christ into the center of our world. He desires for us to be people who seek to live in a manner that fully embraces that original creation, imago dei, image of God. He created us in his image. Now the first people, Adam and Eve, desired to be like God rather than to be willing and content to rest in being made in his image and allowing him to be the provider for all that they needed as, as his image bears. He desires for us to become people who are, are, are willing to yield ourselves to him, to desire to be truly people living in God's image, not ones who bring our own desires to the picture, our own will to the game, and to seek to be like God. In other words, to be ones who make all the decisions, who call all the shots, who, who determine the outcomes, who, who look for things to be the way that we want them to be, all with good, even, even when that has good intent. God wants us to say, say no to all of that. He wants us to be desirous of stepping out of the comfort of living out of the center of our own wills into the risky yet glorious adventure of living in the center of his. This, this is God's desire for us. John tells us in Revelation 12:11, they overcame him, the accuser, by the blood of the lamb and the word of their testimony. He calls us to live in the grace of Christ. He calls us to live in the sovereignty of God's will. He calls us to live together in community, to testify together of God's great and wonderful purpose for our world and for our lives, for his eternal salvation. This is what he calls us to do. We are the beneficiaries of the victory over evil that came through Christ. We no longer need to live in fear of death, for eternity is ours. We, we are ones who, who have that, that eternal place secure for us through Christ's sacrifice. And, and his name is sovereign, and his name should be the one that we hold up above all else in this life. In, in Paul in Romans 5, uh, 15 through 17 says this, but the free gift is not like the transgression. For if by the transgression of the one, the many died, much more did the grace of God and the gift of the grace of the one man, Jesus Christ, abound to the many. 
The gift is not like that which came through the one who sinned. For, the one, for on the one hand, the judgment arose from the one transgression, resulting in condemnation. But on the other hand, the free gift arose from the many transgressions, resulting in justification. For if by the transgression of the one, death reigned through the one, much more those who receive the abundance of grace and of the gift of righteousness will reign in life through the one, Jesus Christ. So, in Christ, we bring the glory of God into our world. We can choose to live in fear or in quiet submission to Satan's threats and intimidation. But remember, Satan is the loser. He does create chaos and bring about destruction with its pain and loss. But he does not prevail. Additionally, he is a selfish and a beastly master. C.S. Lewis describes it near the end of the la- his book, The Last Battle. Uh, the scene here is, is uh, with a great fight at the, at, near the end of the story. And uh, uh, Tyrion, the last king of Narnia, is engaged in, 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 a, in a saber duel with Rishtar Tarkhan, the, the, the leader of the, the Kalarmin, the, the opponents of God's people in this story. Remember, in, this, in these stories, hopefully most of you are familiar with them, uh, Aslan is, is the Christ figure, and, and Tash is the satanic evil one. And in this scene, there is this great fight ensuing, and it goes like this. A new idea came into Tyrion's head. He dropped his sword, darted forward, and under the sweep of the Tarkan scimitar, seized his enemy by the belt with both hands, and jumped back into the stable, shouting, Come in and meet Tash yourself. The, 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 the satanic being Tash is in a stable-like building. Uh, there was a deafening noise as when the ape had been flung in, and the earth shook, and there was a blinding light. The Kalarmin soldiers outside screamed, Tash, Tash, and banged the door. If Tash wanted their own captain, Tash must have him. They, at any rate, did not want to meet Tash. There's a lot of our world that looks like this. People screaming for the evil, screaming on behalf of the evil, but, but fearful of facing it. For a moment or two, Tyrion did not know where he was or even who he was. Then he steadied himself, blinked, and looked around. It was not dark inside the stable as he had expected. He was in a strong light. That was why he was blinking. He turned to look at Rishta Tarkan. But Rishta was not looking at him. Rishta gave a great wail and pointed. Then he put his hands before his face and fell flat, face downward on the ground. Tyrion looked in the direction where the Tarkan had pointed, and then he understood. A terrible figure was coming toward them. It was far smaller than the shape they had seen from the tower, though still much bigger than a man, and it was the same. It had a vulture's head and four arms. Its beak was open and its eyes blazed. A croaking voice came from its beak. Thou hast called me into Narnia, Rishta Tarkan. Here I am. Why hast thou to say? But the Tarkan neither lifted his face from the ground nor said a word. He was shaking like a man with a bad hiccup. He was brave enough in battle, but half his courage had left him earlier that night when he first began to suspect that there might be a real Tash. The rest of it had left him now. And that's one of the realities of our world, isn't it? People don't, don't anticipate that there is truly real evil, that there is a real Satan, 
That this is that, that the things happening in our world are driven by and motivated by forces that are very real. They think when, when we talk in terms of these, these things that we're just a little nuts. But it's real. This is a real battle. This, Lewis was describing something that is the reality of life in this world in our times. Um, with a sudden jerk, like a hen stooping to pick up a worm, Tash pounced on the miserable Rishta and tucked him under the upper of his two right arms. Then Tash turned his head sideways to fix Tyrion with one of his terrible eyes, for, of course, having a bird's head, he couldn't look at you straight. But immediately from behind Tash, strong and calm as the summer sea, a voice said, Be gone, monster, and take your lawful prey to your own place in the name of Aslan and Aslan's great father, the emperor over the sea. The hideous creature vanished with the Tarkin still under its arm and Tyrion turned to see who had spoken and what he saw then set his heart beating as he sees uh, the the community, the the fellowship of those who believe in God and Christ. To fight this fight requires courage. Yet God promises victory and his glory will bring the light of grace, peace, and love into those darkened corners of the world that we reach out to touch in his name. Perhaps you will be the one out of the hundreds who would risk it all to protect the defenseless. Maybe you will run to the sound of the gunfire and place yourself in a direct line between the perpetrator and the victim. You might get to reach down in mercy to soothe the brow of the impoverished. God's grace allows that each of us is granted the opportunity to touch creation with the hand of the creator. This is about allowing Christ to move us from being like God to being what God intended in his creation, that is being imago dei, in God's image. It is is in responding that we can choose to be be subject to evil or to apply the pressure of God's heel to evil's head our choice. We get to make that every day that we walk this earth. Let's pray. Father God, we just uh, want to stand before you today as men and women who desire to follow you, who seek to know your will, and who are not afraid to enter into the dark places. We're not afraid to allow your will to prevail in our lives. Lord God, it is your will that uh, that is sovereign. It is you that we know rules this world today. That that is a promise that you have made. That that is a promise that you do keep. And Lord, we we are blessed by your your presence. We are granted grace to live in the fullness of your your salvation, Lord. We, we delight in you and we desire you and we desire to know you ever better. Lord, help us to yield our wills to you. Help us to be the ones who are completely and totally committed to your will. Lord Jesus, we thank you. We uh, pray these things in your name. Amen. Um, we're going to be able to enter into a time of communion together today. Uh, glorious time of sharing Uh, this wonderful sacrament that God has granted to us. Uh, And uh, so if you 
If you are one who is not normally with us, please feel welcome. We, ask, we invite all who know Christ to join in communion together. We take the elements one at a time and then we consume them together. So bread first and then we will come back with the cup. So Lord, we just, we just ask that you be with us in community this time together. The Lord Jesus, in the night in which he was betrayed, took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do the same in remembrance of me. Bread. In the same way, he took the cup after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in, the, in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. Blood of the new covenant. Jesus, we come before you today as uh, your children. We desire to walk away from here today as your children who follow you well. Lord, I pray that you will touch each life here in the sadness and in the joy, in the pain and the pleasure, and allow that your presence would be overall, that your presence would be the answer for everything. Lord, we thank you for this time together today, and we, we pray these things in the name of Jesus the Christ. Amen.